This is God's word. This is Philippians chapter 3, verse 1. Further, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. It's no trouble for me to write the same things to you again, and it is a safeguard for you. Watch out for those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh, for it is we who are the circumcision, we who serve God by his Spirit, who boast in Christ Jesus, and who put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reasons for such confidence, if someone else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews in regard to the law, a Pharisee as for zeal persecuting the church, as for righteousness based on the law, faultless. But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained all this, or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining towards what is ahead, I press on towards the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. All of us then who are mature should take such a view of things. And if on some point you think differently, the two God will make clear to you. Only let us live up to what we have already attained. Join together in following my example, brothers and sisters, and just as you have us as a model, keep your eyes on those who live as we do. For as I have often told you before, and now tell you again, even with many tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction. Their God is their stomach, and their glory is in their shame. Their mind is set on earthly things, but our citizenship is in heaven. And we eagerly await a savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. Amen. In a throwback to the days of John Dickinson, I'm going to blow my nose two seconds, okay? So. There you go. Um, no one likes a show off, right? At least that's what I was told this week over the dinner table whenever I completed Wordle in three guesses once again. Uh, I was really pleased with my accomplishments and achievements, but uh, no one likes a show off. But here in chapter three of Philippians, Paul lists his impressive qualifications and what a, what a list they are. Circumcised as a baby, one of the Israelites. God's chosen people, a descendant of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew and a Pharisee, faultless in the sight of the law. In terms of spiritual credentials to those who were listening at the time, Paul was way up there. He had it all. His credentials, his achievements would have elevated him up some kind of spiritual ladder in the eyes of many. It's the kind of list that I, of credentials that I had in my mind as a teenager whenever I thought about what a good, what made a really good Christian, you know. So for me as a teenager, it was wearing a WWJ 
JD bracelet, you know, what would Jesus do? Um, if you had that on your wrist, that, that marked you out. You were a really good Christian. Maybe for you, it's the fish sign on the, on the bumper of the car. You know, for me, there was also, if you played the guitar, and, and as a teenager, I just thought that was, that was up there, okay, that elevated you, especially if you had a rainbow strap on that guitar, you know, I was just th- th- there. Um, maybe if you went to some kind of mission trip in the summer, if you gave up your summer and you went to travel somewhere else in the world to serve God, you know, you're right up at the top of the list. If you attended the prayer meeting in church, again, you know, elevated up. And, and Paul lists these kind of credentials in that culture at the time of things that would have elevated him up the spiritual ladder in, in some eyes. But rather than listing these credentials to impress other people, you know, like we might present a CV, here's all our strengths, here's all my accomplishments. Paul lists all his achievements and then he says this, I consider them, I consider everything a loss compared to knowing Jesus compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. I consider them garbage, he says, that I may gain Christ and be found. And Paul's saying that his credentials and his accomplishments and his achievements are worthless compared to knowing Jesus. He casts them aside, sees them as garbage, which is his words. It's an amazing attitude. And it reminds us of what we read in Philippians chapter one, just uh, two or three weeks ago, where Paul writes, for me to live Uh, Sorry, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. I'm torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. At our discipleship community on Wednesday night, we were joined by a couple of stragglers. Um, By that, I mean a retired couple in our church who have been here for 50 years, but they walked into the church on Wednesday night expecting their group to be on, but their group wasn't meeting. For and they hadn't realized that, and so they had come and walked into our room. And so we had the opportunity, we said, You know, come and join our group and be part of it just for one night only. It's okay, I wasn't stealing them, you know. But they, they, they joined our group for the night, and it was, it was brilliant. We were so blessed to have their input in the discussion. But they had been reading this passage in preparation for the meeting that night, um, and they'd been really troubled by that verse for me to live as Christ and to die as gain. And, and one of them in particular was asking, he was troubled. He says, what, what was, what's Paul really saying here? You know, to be torn between death and life. He was, he was concerned. He said, what, what was Paul contemplating when he said that? And as we chatted, first of all, it helped us to remember the context that Paul was writing this letter. So these words from Paul are penned, not on a sunny beach in Greece, but they're written while he was in a prison in Rome under proper lockdown, by the way. You know, proper isolation, chained to a a guard who he's under house arrest at the hands of the strongest military superpower of his day. So he's facing death, facing certainly the possibility and the prospect of death. And first of all, it's a brilliant example because in the midst of that context, he's saying, you know, he's communicating hope and grace and and, and confidence in the gospel and thankfulness, you know, so it's an amazing example to us in the circumstances that we face. But whenever he says, if I live, then I'll serve Christ, but if I die, it will be even better. That's what he's saying. He's, he's faced with the prospect of death, but in the face of that prospect, he's saying that the things of this earth 
fear and the insignificance compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus. I read a comment this week about this passage pointing out how so many Christians throughout history have found hope while being behind bars. How? Why? Because they count everything else as loss compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus as Lord. Paul is not saying that there's no joy to be found in the things of this world. He's not saying that You know, it's wrong to find happiness in achievements or accomplishments or in things that happen in our life or things that we experience on earth. He's not saying that. He's saying that if you think these things are good, they have no comparison when placed beside knowing Jesus as Lord. It's that this Jesus is better than anything we can experience or achieve or accomplishments. Where do we place our confidence? Where do we find our hope? Paul takes no confidence, no hope in his earthly circumstances or achievements. And maybe that's the opposite of what we're told in culture, isn't it? We're told to believe in ourselves. We're told that you can achieve whatever you want. You know, there's even this kind of whole thinking now around the idea of manifesting. You can visualize what you want to be or see or achieve. And the more you visualize it and imagine it and dream it and think about those possibilities, you can get there somehow or someday simply by, by kind of thinking that way or, or visualizing it. We're told that you can achieve whatever you want. You can achieve your dreams because you're enough. The missing treasure you find, you're looking for is in you. Browse the options, compare the market. And yet it's all a fallacy. Our culture tells us that we are the answer to our problems. This morning I couldn't even get our four-year-old to pick up a spoon and eat his breakfast. Christian discipleship isn't a journey of self-improvement. It's surrender. It's growing as a Christian isn't knowing all the answers, but trusting the one who is the answer, saying that all of this is loss in comparison to knowing Jesus. It's not to be more confident in ourselves. And that's what Paul's displaying here. He wasn't displaying confidence in his achievement. He was displaying confidence in Christ. Do we have that confidence? not asking, are you confident for yourself? Do you have the confidence or are you placing your confidence in Christ and his achievements and his accomplishments? Like what Christine said today on on Jesus being lifted up and raised up in the cross, is that where we're placing our hope? Um, Last Thursday, I had the privilege of spending my lunch hour on Zoom. I don't normally say that sentence, okay. I had the privilege of spending my lunch hour on Zoom with a group of Christian students who, li- who live in the far, who are part of a Bible college in the Far East. And it was through the charity Stand By Me, which might be known to you, and they uh, have a link with a Bible college there. And I was just asked to kind of share some thoughts through a translator on Zoom, which was quite the experience, let me tell you. Um, a 10-minute talk took about 25 or 30 minutes, okay. Um, and Right now, the country that that Bible college is in is under military rule. 
Some of the students who were part of that class are no longer part of that class because they have been lifted and taken and conscripted to that military um, force. Some of the students who were there last week, I was told, weren't there this week because in their village, they, the electricity or power had, had, had gone out because it wasn't, it's not being looked after well by the occupiers. Some of the students joined in the dark on camera phones, couldn't see their faces because they were so desperate to connect with the Bible college in the midst of what was going on. For me, it was a visual picture of verse 10 here. I want to know Christ. The power of his resurrection and the participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. How? How can Christians like that, young Christians like that, be so faithful in the midst of suffering? Paul tells us the answer. Because they have found and they count it all as loss compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus. You see, Paul is not trying to set himself up here as like a super Christian or a super apostle. He's actually trying to downplay his credentials. And he's quick to point out that he's not the finished product yet. He says, not that I've already obtained this. If you think of who, who would be, a, you know, in this context, a special Christian, it would be Paul. And he's saying, but I, I haven't achieved it yet. I haven't obtained all this. I have already arrived at my goal. And he says, I press on towards the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. I love this admission by Paul. He's honest about the fact that he hasn't made it yet. He hasn't arrived. He's continuing to rely on God, to trust in Jesus and to press on towards the, the, the goal to which he's been called. My first boss in Christian ministry was... Um, a lady called Helen Warnock. Helen was the general director of Scripture Union for years and, and before becoming the principal of Belfast Bible College. She's now on the leadership team of our church plant in Belfast and one of, one of our elders. And she had this phrase that she continually repeated to me uh, over and over again, particularly in my first couple of years of, of ministry. And she say, used to say this all the time, wear your L plates with pride. Wear your L plates with pride. And it was this reminder of, it's okay to not have it all together. It's not okay to have it all sussed out. Be a learner. Wear your L plate with pride. And she was reminding me I shouldn't try to project perfection to other people, but rather acknowledge weakness and brokenness and, and imperfection. You know, I haven't arrived yet, and so I need to press on towards the, go the goal of becoming more like Jesus. And you know, no matter our age and stage here today, no matter whether we've been following Jesus for 50 years or five minutes, we all have more to learn. We all have, have, have more to, uh, to go on our journey of becoming more like Jesus. And you know, can I say, wear your L plate with pride. To not walk around this church or even walk around in your life pretending that you have all, it all together. Whenever we see an L plate on a car, well, I don't know whether you <laughs> swerve and pull over to the side of the road if it's coming towards you, but you know, if you see an L plate on a car, it is a visual indicator that there's someone in control of that vehicle who isn't competent enough to be left to their own devices. They need another beside them to guide them. We are to advertise to the world that we aren't competent enough to live life on our own. We are not enough. 
we need another beside us to guide us and to correct us and to teach us. And actually the word, the Greek word for the word disciple is mathetes, which literally means learner, student, apprentice. We're to wear our L plates with pride. That's what Paul's saying here. So then that begs the question, how do we grow? How do we grow? If we're to, lear- to be learners, how do we grow? And Paul answers that here by using running vocabulary. Um, so he, he talks about pressing on to reach the prize to which he's called and because he hasn't reached the goal of being transformed to be fully like Jesus. He says, press on. There's this kind of strange contrast in the, in the passage that, and both of these things are true, that while God works in us, we also need to make effort ourselves to grow. Both of those things are, are true. God is working in us to help us to become more like Jesus, but also we need to work and, and make effort and press on. Um, I'm planning to run a marathon next weekend, and for the last 16 weeks I've been training quite hard. I mean, what's the point in doing that if you can't tell people about it? So, uh, <laughs> It's, and it's, it's involved a training plan, okay? It's involved a, a specific and a tailored plan where I've increased my miles each week. I've planned out my runs. I've tried to hit certain paces. I've built up my fitness. It's needed a plan. My wife would roll her eyes. She did this morning at 9.30. But, you know, what's your plan for spiritual growth? And maybe some of you hear that and think, that doesn't even sound right. You know, I, 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 I wouldn't want to plan. That sounds too legalistic. I wouldn't be like a Pharisee, you know. Following Jesus shouldn't be about discipline and rules. It's about freedom and grace, right? But we don't say that about other things in life, do we? When Catherine Foster ran her PB in Parkrun week on week, okay, she'd followed a plan. She'd trained. She'd followed a specific plan. If you... Maybe follow a diet plan. You, you, you plan for it. You might make holiday plans or, or birthday plans. We wouldn't turn up at the airport someday and, and just hope to go on holiday somewhere. You, you plan it. You wouldn't say, oh, you know, I, I don't want to be too tied down in my travel plans. I, I, you know, I just want to be free to go anywhere. If you have that attitude, you'll probably go nowhere. You plan. You need to plan somewhere. You have a destination in your mind and then you make a plan for how you get there and you press on towards it. We understand the need to plan for life. So if we want to become more like Jesus, what's our plan? If we want to develop in our prayer life, what's our plan? If you want your kids to know Jesus better, what's our plan for that? And then how will we press on towards it? Discipleship is that really beautiful tension of God working within us and alongside us moving intentionally towards God's will. It requires both his power and our effort. Billy Graham said, salvation is free, but discipleship costs. So how do we grow? We invite God to work his will in our life and we press on to becoming more like him in how we live. Good news is we haven't been left alone to do it. 
So we've been given others around us to help. And Paul reminds the Philippians of this in verse 17. He says, join together and following my example, brothers and sisters. And just as you have us as a model, keep your eyes on those who live as we do. I love that little line. Keep your eyes on those who live as we do. You want to grow? You want to become more like Jesus? Pray and ask God to work in your life, but also keep your eye on those who live like Jesus. I don't know who that is for you, who that is around your life that you could keep your eye on as they model what it looks like to follow Jesus. Now, it's not that we build them up or you know, look to them for some sort of hope in our life. People will let us down. People are imp- imperfect. But Paul's encouraging the believers to look around in the community and the church and, and uh, who else models and reflects Jesus Follow them, learn from them. You know, Christianity is about image. It is about image. Now, it's not about bodily appearance, so maybe we can rest easy, at least I can, but Christianity is about living in a way that reflects the likeness of our creator, Jesus. C.S. Lewis coined the phrase that we are to become like little Christs, which I love. You know, what do you want to be when you grow up? A little Christ. But it is about him. It's about us imaging our maker and our master. Paul is saying, keep your eyes on those around you who live like Jesus. Keep your eyes on those who can model to you. And in a world of increasing individualism, where we're tempted to see ourselves as islands, what about committing ourselves to the body of Christ and joining together with brothers and sisters to help you press on in faith? But before I finish this morning, let me also ask another question. So where... How do we grow? But also, where is our hope placed? And point you to one other verse in this passage that kind of leads us to that question. Paul writes, their destiny is destruction. Their God is their stomach and their glory is in their shame. Their mind is set on earthly things, but our citizenship is in heaven. Paul's citizenship was in heaven. Where is your citizenship found? Where's your hope placed? Maybe this morning it's worth reflecting and all of us reflecting on whether there's an unhealthy attitude or prejudice or loyalty or attachment in your life that indicates your identity is more bound up with your citizenship on earth rather than heaven. Where's your hope placed? Despite his credentials, Paul's citizenship wasn't tied up in his earthly achievements, nor were they in a political tribe or a national identity or in a human philosophy. For those who are in Christ, our citizenship is in heaven. We're citizens of heaven who are passing through earth. Over the last few weeks, I've been following the updates of a couple from Northern Ireland called Timothy and Rhoda Sloan who are living and leading a church in Ukraine and uh, right now. And I've found their post remarkable in the midst of the terror and the devastation that's going on in their land. Just last Sunday on their Facebook page, I read that or saw a video of them doing actions with the kids like we would do on Sundays. And uh, they were teaching their kids the song, The Wise Man Built This House Upon the Rock. You know, when the storms come, What were they teaching their kids? Your identity is on the firm foundation of Jesus. 
And uh, I just thought it was an incredible truth for them to be declaring to their kids in the midst of the threat that surrounds them. But these are some of the words that they shared online on the day that the war broke out. They wrote this, said, we are not leaving. How can we? As an elder, my responsibility is to shepherd at all times. It will be a terrible testimony to get up and leave. We have been preparing for this day. We have brought in generators, fuel, and food as we would like to accommodate and feed those who will face hardship. As we close this letter, this post, the military jets can be heard overhead. We are not any braver than you are, but confident we are where God would expect us to be. And I read that and thought, how on earth could they write that? How can they say that? And the answer, because they count everything as loss compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus. Can you say that? Can I say that? That you count it all as loss compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus. Maybe that's the call today or the reminder today to lay down whatever identity we've built or empire we've created or desire we have and to say, I count it as loss compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus. Not because some stuff isn't important, but because Jesus is better. The passage reminds me of the worship song written by Graham Kendrick, and I'm gonna end with just sharing the lyrics of them. And maybe this could be our prayer today. All I once held dear, built my life upon. All this world reveres and wars to own. All I once thought gain, I've counted loss, spent and worthless now, compared to this. Knowing you, Jesus, knowing you, there is no greater thing. You're my all, you're the best, you're my joy, my righteousness, and I love you, Lord. And then their last verse goes on to say this, to know the power of your risen life and to know you in your sufferings, to become like you in your death, my Lord, so with you to live and never die. Knowing you, Jesus, knowing you, there is no greater thing. You're my all, you're the best. You're my joy, my righteousness, and I love you, Lord. Everything's lost compared to knowing Jesus. So press on. We're gonna sing this song now give you an opportunity to invite you to use it as a prayer for your life this morning, maybe as a declaration of hope in Jesus, or perhaps even today as a prayer of commitment for the first time to say, I want to know you, Jesus, and I want to follow you today. And can I encourage you just to keep your seats during the first verse and chorus of this song, just to give a moment of reflecting on on what we're saying and what we're singing. And then as we go into the second verse, um, you can, uh, please do stand up, join with us, and we'll sing that on another song before we close um, this morning. Knowing you, Jesus, there is no greater thing.